It's been said that no event in the Bible is more at odd with the claims of modern science than the story of Noah's Ark and the flood. The scientific establishment of today says that the universe is 13.8 billion years old, that our solar system and the earth are four and a half million years old, that the geological column that we see, it was laid down, resulted from gradual processes that occurred throughout history, and that life has been evolving on earth for three and a half billion years, and man has been on earth for about 300,000 years. However, a straightforward reading of the book of Genesis says that all of creation came into existence in six literal days about 6,000 years ago, and that God sent a flood that covered the whole earth and killed all land animals that were not on Noah's Ark, and essentially that all the land animals and people have been repopulated from pairs roughly about 4,500 years ago. If the Genesis flood is an actual event, it's the most significant physical event in the history of the world since creation, and it would have had a much greater impact than any other physical event since the creation of the world. The big idea this morning, key idea, main point is this. We can have confidence that the Genesis flood was an actual event by examining three types of evidence, the biblical, the cultural, and the geological evidence. We can have confidence the Genesis flood was an actual event when we examine those three types of evidence. So we're going to start, we're going to spend most of our time looking at the biblical evidence for the flood that's described here in Genesis 7, starting in verse 11. And the first piece of biblical evidence we're going to see is this, the historical details. Starting in verse 11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of, that, of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery dips burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And you may say, well, okay, what's the big deal? Why? The 600th year of Noah's life, second month, 17th day, What's so important about that? Now, I tend to be a detail-oriented person, get kitted for that. But this tells us exactly when the flood happened based upon the most significant person at that point in time. In fact, such dating is normal in any historical record. You see other places in the Bible where things are dated by kings' lives, rulers' lives, and most ancient historical records are generally dated by some point in a significant person's life. And Noah was definitely a significant person. So we're told exactly when the flood happened to the very day. Not only that, we're told what happened. It says here, the floodgates, or the source of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were open. We're going to come back to what that means here in just a minute but we're told what happened, that it rained, that it was a torrential type of rain. And then finally, we're told exactly how long it happened. In fact, three different uh, areas in which that we're told that. It says in verse 12, rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. If you go to verse 24, it says that the water surged or prevailed on the earth for 150 days for five months. And if you go to Genesis 7 and, and add on 
the details that are given in chapter 8, you actually see that the flood that Noah and his family were in the ark for just a little bit over a year. We're given very significant historical details just in this text. So that's the first piece of biblical evidence, the historical details. The second thing we see is this. If you look closely, you're going to see the world was very different before the flood. We don't tend to picture that, I think. You know, you see pictures of, you know, Noah and the ark and all these animals or whatever, but I don't think we typically take that into account. In verse 11, going back to that again, it said, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened. We're going to look first at that phrase, the floodgates of the sky. What does that mean? To really understand that, we need to go back to chapter 1, the original creation, starting in verse 6, it says, Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so, and God called the expanse sky. So we're told we've got the sky, but we have water up above the sky and water down below the sky. Water down below the sky makes sense would be the oceans, but we're not familiar with this huge amount of water up above the sky. So the world was very different before the flood. The first detail we see here in the text is this. There was a vast water vapor canopy. There was a vast water vapor canopy. Henry Morris, in his book, The Genesis Record, said this, The vast vaporous canopy maintained the earth as a beautiful greenhouse, preventing cold temperatures. Being in the vapor state, it was invisible and fully transparent, but nevertheless contained vast quantities of water extending far out into space. Actually, if it was a beautiful greenhouse later on, we're going to see that's some of the evidence we find later on geologically. John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur said this, there was a vast black blanket of water and it had to be vast in order to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. There had to be a lot more water up there than there is up there, than there is now up there. If all the water currently and all the clouds surrounding the earth were dumped on the earth at the maximum, it could only cover the earth less than an inch in depth. The world had to be really different with this huge, vast water canopy if the clouds now could only cover the earth to an inch in depth. So there's this water vapor canopy, first detail we see that was different before the flood. Second thing we see is this, there were vast sources of water under the earth's crust. In verse 11, it said, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. So what does that mean? Well, it can't be the oceans. It's saying things burst open. In their book, A Closer Look at the Evidence, Richard and Tina Cleese said this, the Hebrew word used for broken up, they were using, I think, the NIV, or the CSB says burst open, but he says, the Hebrew word for, used for broken up also means to rip open or burst forth. This implies that massive quantities of subterranean waters existed below the surface of the earth and that these waters broke forth to fill our present sea basins. Again, going back to Pastor John MacArthur, he said this, the sequence in this verse indicating that the earth's crust breaks up first, then the heavens drop their water 
is interesting because the volcanic explosions that would have occurred when the earth fractured would have sent magma and dust into the atmosphere along with gigantic sprays of water, gas, and air all penetrating the canopy, triggering its downpour. So not only was there a water vapor canopy and vast sources of water under the Earth's crust that burst forth, the third detail we can find is this. The mountains were not at their current heights. And you say, well, I didn't see that in Genesis 7. Where do you get that, Bruce? Well, if you look at Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9, it says, he established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. Now, that appears to refer to creation, for sure. But then it goes on. It says, you covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. That seems to relate to what we see in Genesis 7, 19 through 20, where it says the mountains were covered. It goes on. In verse 7, it says, at your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. Verse 9 can't refer to the initial creation because water did cover the earth again in the flood. It seems like probably verses 6 through 9 really all tied together are talking about the flood, telling us that mountains rose after the flood was done. A note in the Apologetic Study Bible said this, the planets lack a sufficient water for such a flood can be explained if the water's weight pushed mountains higher than they were before. So we've looked at two pieces of biblical evidence, the historical details and how the world was really different before the flood. The last thing we're going to see is this, based on the text, the flood was worldwide. Verses 19 and 20 say this, then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. It says all the high mountains were covered, all the high mountains under the whole sky. They were covered to a depth of more than 20 feet. So one piece of evidence within the text that the flood was worldwide is just this. All the mountains were covered. If all the mountains were covered, the flood world was covered. Second thing we see is that every creature perished. In verse 21 going through 23 actually says four times within these three verses that everything died. Verse 21 says every creature perished, those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. Three times here, every creature perished, everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. When my kids were little, if I told them something three times, when I told them something three times, I wanted to make sure that they heard that, that they didn't, you know, that they didn't miss that. But he goes on even in verse 23, one more time, he says, it says he wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawled to the birds of the sky. They were wiped off the earth. So another piece of evidence that the flood was worldwide was not only were the mountains covered, every creature perished. The last thing that we see that indicates that the flood was worldwide is this. Only those in the ark were saved. 
In verse 23, it says, Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. So he looked at three pieces of biblical evidence. Before we go on to cultural evidence, I'd like to address just three common questions about Noah, the ark, the flood that this passage uh, can answer. There, You may have more questions than that. That's fine, but there's plenty of questions. We'll, we'll just address these three. First question is this. Sometimes people will say, how did Noah get all the animals? They seem to have the picture, you know, that Noah was just, you know, a real uh, great trapper. He had to just go out and he, he figured out a way to get all these animals. But it's very clearly, if you look at, very clear if you look at the text, in verse 15 it says, two of every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Did Noah have to go out and search for the animals? No, they just came to him. If you have trouble believing that, well, okay, it says in Genesis chapter 2 when God brought all the animals to Adam to name, if he brought all the animals to Adam to name, he made these creatures, can't he bring them to Noah on the ark as well? So how did Noah get the animals? They came to him. Simple question there. Was there enough room for the animals? That's a little tougher question. In the earlier chapters back in Genesis chapter 6, we see that the ark in terms of our measurements was Roughly 450 feet long, the length of a football field and a half. Some have said that the size of the ark was greater than like 500 railroad boxcars. But in Genesis 7.14, we see interesting detail there. It says, they entered it with all the wildlife. So Noah and his sons and their wives and his wife entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their times. Now again, here we've got something repeated this time four times. It says according to their kinds. Now, I don't think, I think God wanted to get our attention with that when he says according to their kinds. In fact, if you look back in Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about God creating all the land animals in verses 21 through 25, you'll see six times there that it talks about God made them all according to their kind. So it seems like this must be a significant detail. God wants us to pick something up from this. In, the, in a 2000 issue, or 2015 issue of Answers magazine, they tried to answer this same question. Started out, they said, how could one guy get a million species of animals on a boat for a whole year. But it goes on, it says, Noah was not instructed to bring two of every species as if he used our modern classification system. Instead, Noah was told to bring two of every kind of unclean animal and more of the clean animals. The biblical kind seems to line up well with the family level of taxonomy. One study of land animals, both living and extinct, showed about a thousand kinds of animals, meaning Noah had fewer than 5,000 animals. goes on, it says, an earlier study using representatives from every genus demonstrated there would have been plenty of space for 16,000 creatures with their food and supplies. Now, so catch the idea, maybe you don't remember all from high school science, taxonomy, but you got like the families. Families are broken up into genuses, then we get our species. It's not saying that he had to take every species of animal that we have, but every kind. So like from the dog kind, from the dog kind, you, there's enough genetic variation that the dogs could have developed into wolves, coyotes, German shepherds, whatever. 
or from the cat kind. You could have lions, tigers, jaguars, whatever. All it says is that they all entered according to their kinds. Studies, creation scientists have shown there was plenty of enough room for all the animals. Final question we see is this. What about the dinosaurs? I mean, come on, Bruce. You know, we, we, see, we have fossils. These dinosaurs were huge. How would you get all those dinosaurs, you know, on the ark? And that's presupposing that you believe dinosaurs live with men. But Genesis chapter 1, if dinosaurs were land animals, they had to be created on the sixth day. So how could you get these huge uh, land animals on the ark? And again, I'm going to go to, I've been going to refer to this several times in the book, a closer look at the evidence. It's written as a daily devotional. November 25th talks about the fossil record. It says this about dinosaurs. Evolutionists believe that dinosaurs died out some 65 million years before man came into existence. Yet the fossil record provides much evidence to support the biblical claim that dinosaurs lived at the same time as mankind. Throughout history, there have been records of man's encounters with dinosaur-like creatures. From Africa to Europe to the Orient, these encounters have been captured in historical accounts, stories, legends, and drawings. Dinosaur remains have also been found that are still not completely fossilized. Large dinosaur bones have been found in Colorado with traces of unfossilized blood. If dinosaur bones were 65 million years old, they would be completely fossilized. These unfossilized bones with traces of blood and DNA fragments indicate that dinosaurs, dinosaurs died much more recently than the commonly repeated 65 million years ago. By looking objectively at the biblical account, the fossil record and historical data, one cannot help but reach the conclusion that man and dinosaurs have indeed coexisted. It's only by ignoring much of the evidence and uncritically accepting evolutionary beliefs that the opposite conclusion can be reached. So what about the dinosaurs? Now, again, we get to the problem of their size. Most people think, well, these dinosaurs were huge. True, dinosaurs were huge, but they were, they were lizards, reptiles that grew throughout their entire life. The average dinosaur was actually about the size of a sheep. The largest ones came from eggs that were about the size of a football. Now, if God brought the animals to Noah, I don't think he probably brought an animal that was hundreds of years old that had gotten to be huge. He could have brought a young one. It's a fact it makes more sense to bring and have a young one come to him. So there's really not a problem with dinosaurs and their size when it comes to how did we get, how did we get dinosaurs on the ark. So we've looked at the biblical evidence. We've looked at the historical details. We see the world was very different before the flood. We see that the flood was worldwide. Answered some questions there. Next, we want to look at cultural evidence. Did you know that over 270 cultures have stories about some great flood? In fact, if we go to the next slide, on the next slide, you will see a picture there. Talks about flood traditions. Over the top, I think they've got like 20 different cultures just in this diagram. Couldn't get 270 up there. You wouldn't be able to read it. But you can see the legend kind of up in the upper left. That a green box indicates a full representation of a biblical idea. A red triangle represents a partial 
uh, representation of a biblical idea. And you can see down the left-hand side there, like if you go down to the fifth and the sixth rows there, the fifth row is destruction by water. All, almost every one, what, 18 of those 20 boxes had a full representation of that. One had a partial. Humans saved. There's a few less there, but you can see many, many cultures had, uh, had flood stories. In fact, again, I'm going to quote John MacArthur here. John MacArthur said this, the flood traditions that come from various cultures, he said 95% of these say that this great catastrophe came on the whole world, that the cause of it was a flood. 88% of them say there was a favored family that was spared. 70% say survival was by means of a boat. 67% of these traditional flood stories say that the animals were, all, that animals were also saved. 66% of these traditions say that it came because of man's wickedness. 57% of the stories say that the survivors ended up on a mountain. Many of them speak about birds being sent out. Many of them speak about uh, a rainbow. And many of them say that eight people were saved. I'm going to go again and quote a closer look at the evidence. In that book, they said, Every culture, from the Chinese to the Aztecs, Aborigines to the ancient Greeks, Eskimos to the Africans, have an ancient account of a universal flood. Many of these stories include details of a righteous man being saved on a floating vessel and attribute the event to, some, to judgment from God. If this really happened, people would have spread across the globe after the catastrophe. As centuries passed, the account of the flood would have been distorted, but remembered. This is exactly what we find. So there's cultural evidence based on the fact that so many cultures, over 270 cultures around the world, have stories of a universal worldwide flood. Lastly, we want to look at ge geological evidence for a worldwide flood. Now, as we talk about geological evidence, I'm going to start by stating there's really two contrasting views of geology. One is the uniformitarianism view. The other is the cataclysm view. The uniformitarianism view is this. It's the theory that all we find in our world can be explained by processes which presently operate in the physical universe. So everything has to be explained by presences by processes that are presently operating in our world. In other words, you completely rule out the idea of miracles. God can't have his hand in anything. It just has to happen by what you see here and now. The cataclysm view is this. It's the theory that the geologic features of our earth must be explained in terms of one or more past large-scale and violent events. That's the definition of a cataclysm. It's a large-scale violent event. Up to the late 1700s, most scientists believed in the Genesis account of the worldwide flood that's described in the Bible. But since that time, the uniformitarianism view has taken over in our colleges and in our universities. The question to ask, though, is this. Does the uniformitarianism view best explain the evidence we see? We both have the same evidence. Donald W. Patton, in his book Creation, said this. Why were dinosaurs quickly drowned and buried in sediments? Why were mammoths quickly drowned in North America and quick frozen or flash frozen in Siberia, even with subtropical vegetation in their mouths and stomach? 
There's millions of mammoths that have been found in Siberia that appeared just to have been quickly flash frozen. Uh, how did that happen if everything happened slowly and we just have to explain it by na natural processes we see now? He goes on to say, why were petrified forests found 100 miles from the South Pole by Admiral Byrd? It seems like yet that the world at one time had to be pretty much like a greenhouse, like we talked about earlier. Um, why were land animals found fossilized in locations below sea level? And why were sea animals found fossilized at high elevations? Patton noted that sea animals have been found fossilized at high elevations. Even at the top of Mount Everest, they found sedimentary rocks with fossils in them that had to be created by some sort of sediment laid down by some sort of flood. How did they get there? How do you explain that? by natural processes that occur today. So we're going to look at four geologic features that are best explained by a worldwide flood. The first one is this, the fossils of sea creatures found high above sea level. How'd they get there? How do you explain that if you use a uniformitarianism view of, of geology? Second feature best explained by a flood is this. There's little or no erosion between layers of, many layers of strata. For example, a little over a year ago, Becky and I, we went to the Grand Canyon. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, almost in Dallas, you've all seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. You'll see all these different layers, these rock layers in the Grand Canyon. If we go to the next slide, there's a picture there of, it's taken in the Grand Canyon. On the top is the Coconino sandstone layer. Below that's the Hermit Shales, kind of the reddish layer on on the bottom. So if you see the see between kind of the more yellow sandstone layer on the top and the shale down below, you'll see it's like just a really nice straight line. When evolutionists look at this contact point between the Coconino sandstone on the top and the hermit shale below, they see 10 million years of missing time and material. But if this represents 10 million years, why don't we see any sign of erosion between the layers? If that actually took place over the course of 10, to 10 million years, the natural processes we see happen today would have caused erosion. It wouldn't be a straight line. So a second geological feature that's explained by a flood would be pictured like this. There's little or no erosion between the layers of strata. A third feature that's best explained by a flood is polystrate fossils. Now, polystrate's a big word. Poly just means many, straight refers to the strata that we were just looking at there. A polystrate fossil is something like a tree trunk that runs through strata that supposedly represent many millions of years of time. Go to the next slide. You'll see a picture there. In the middle, you see that's actually a fossilized tree trunk. But if you look on the sides, you're going to see lots and lots and layers of strata. If it took million year, millions of years to lay down all those layers of strata... How did that tree trunk get fossilized? Why didn't it decay on the top in that time frame? Maybe part of the bottom would be, you know, buried in there, but it doesn't make sense. Such evidence really indicates rapid burial of the tree in mudslides, molten rock layers over a very short period of time. Really, that effectively destroys the idea that rock layers represent millions of years of time. And that kind of leads us to our fourth feature, that's best explained by a flood, that's that the fossil record points to rapid burial of plants and animals. 
Once again, I'm going to quote from, the clo- from a closer look at the evidence. In that book, they say, the fossilization of large organisms such as dinosaurs and whole trees presents a problem for the traditional el- evolutionary approach to fossilization. Observation of the world around us shows that organisms decay rather than fossilize. Think how long it would take to bury a huge dinosaur body by slow sedimentation over large periods of time. The body would be long gone before it was ever buried. One must conclude that these fossils were rapidly buried under large amounts of sediment. About 30 years ago, I heard Ken Ham, who's the founder of the ministry Answers in Genesis, if you've heard of the Creation Museum, uh, just south of Cincinnati, Ohio, and Kentucky, and likewise the Noah's Ark exhibit that they, they've opened up. Ken Ham is the founder of that ministry. And I remember hearing him about 30 years ago in a presentation. He said this, what we observe is this, billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Now, he repeated that many times through his many times through his presentation. I'm sure he asked us to say it along with him. So I'm going to ask you guys to say this along with me three times. You can participate. Help you help help get this in your head just a little bit. So say it with me. First time. Billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. That's once. Again, billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. One more time. What are we, billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. What do we find when we look at the geological evidence? We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. Does that best point to a uniformitarianism view of geology or a cataclysm view of geology? We've looked at the biblical, cultural, and geographical or geological evidence for the flood. There's actually a whole lot more we could talk about than this, but just this limited by time somewhat. But hopefully you can see we can trust. We can have confidence that when the Bible talks about a flood in the book of Genesis, we can have confidence that that actually did occur, that it actually happened. So moving from there, how can we put this passage into practice? First thing I came up with this came up with is this. Make sure that you are in Christ. Make sure that you're in Christ. You'll see that phrase in Christ repeated many times through the New Testament. In Genesis 7:16 said this, "Those that entered, male and female of every creature entered just as God had commanded them, then the Lord shut him in, shut Noah and also his family. When Noah and his family and all the creatures were in the ark, they were safe. I do believe in a worldwide flood, but I think that the flood is also a picture of Jesus Christ. Just as Noah and his family were safe and secure when they were in the ark, if we are in Jesus Christ, we are safe, we are secure from the warning the Bible gives us of another judgment that's coming at a later day. You need to make sure that you are in Jesus Christ. Just one verse that I thought of that goes along with that idea, Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you put your faith, have you put your trust in him? If you have, just as Noah and his family were safe and secure from the, from the flood of judgment, you can be safe and secure in Christ. But if you've not put your trust in Christ, what are you waiting for? Why wait when the Bible warns us of what's coming? Second Peter, in chapter 3, the apostle Peter wrote this. In verse 3, he said, Above all, beware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. That verse 4 actually could kind of be a a motto for those who believe in uniformitarianism. He goes on, he says, They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. And he goes on, he says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We're warned in the Bible that there's another day of judgment coming. Make sure that just as Noah and his family made sure they were in the ark, make sure that you are in Christ, that you are safe from the flood of judgment that the Bible tells, well, see, the fire of judgment that we're told warmed of in 2 Peter 3. One final application is this. If you have questions or doubts about the flood, or I would say even include anything in the book of Genesis there, I'd encourage you to look at it, study it from a creationist viewpoint. In fact, even talk with people about it that you have confidence in. And if you've got honest doubts, talk with somebody about it. There was a time, now you may think, okay, Bruce has probably just always believed all these things. Not so. There was a time when I believed the earth was millions of years old. That was all I was ever taught growing up. I can remember the first time I ever heard any evidence presented for a young earth. I was in a high school science class. A fellow student was presenting evidence. And I remember I effectively mocked and scoffed it because I asked a question that she could not answer. Later on, after I put my trust in Christ, a very significant event for me was a pastor that spent time with me, discipled me, I think the very first time he met with me, he asked me, he said, do you have, Bruce, do you have any questions or doubts about the Bible and what God says in the Bible? And I gave, I, I told him some of the doubts I had. This included some of the doubts that I had. We talked about it, and as I heard what he had to share, and as I read and I listened to evidence from a viewpoint that I had never heard taught through all of my schooling, because the uniformitarian view has taken over all of our schools, as I read those things, it really made a difference. It changed my life, because I no longer had an excuse. I couldn't say, well, I don't know that I can trust what the Bible says here if I don't trust what it says from the very beginning. If you've got any questions, honest doubts, feel free. Ask questions of somebody you know. Feel free to grab me after the service. I'll be glad to talk with you as well. I wanted to close with just giving you three recommended resources that you could use if you do honestly have questions and doubts. One's this book I've already referred to, A Closer Look at the Evidence. I've had it, I know. In fact, a number of people in our church, we had a, somehow we got a bunch of these given to us probably roughly 15 years ago or so. Uh, You can order it online now. It's written, as I said, in the form of a daily devotional in two or three minutes a day. You can just get some, you know, some good evidence to help support what we've looked at today, that the Genesis flood was an actual event. 
And two other things I put down here, two ministries, Answers in Genesis, that's Ken's Ham, Ken Ham's ministry, Institute for Creation and Research was started originally by Henry Morris. I mentioned him earlier on. Those are websites you could check out. There's really many, many resources, but I just wanted to limit to three. But I want to close with this. We truly can have confidence that the Genesis flood was an actual event when we look at and examine what the Bible has to say about it, what culture, the evidence we see from cultures around the world, and when we look at the geological evidence. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can have confidence in it. Lord, I even thank you for uh, David and Hartog who challenged me years ago. And Lord, I, yeah, when I shared with him doubts and questions I had, that really helped me to see, open my eyes up. Lord, I do pray for each person here, if there's anybody here with doubts or questions, that they would honestly look at what you say, not just in your word, but other evidence that can be looked at as well, because our, our culture does not teach these things today. Lord, I do pray that each and every person here today would be found in Christ. You warn us, Lord, that judgment's coming once again. Thank you that we can know that if we put our faith and trust in you, just as Noah and his family and all the animals were safe in the ark, if we're trusting in you and found in you, we can know, Lord, that we will not be condemned, we will not be judged. So I pray that for everyone. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.